Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. I was out walking and considering what to cover for the next episode. And I passed by this beautiful garden filled with strange plants. And I thought, I need a garden like that at my house. But I'm a rubbish gardener, so there's probably no point. Anyway, I was still without an episode. So I was just about to, you know, walk on by. When suddenly, and without warning, there was this. It got very dark. And there was this strange humming sound, like something from another world. And when the light came back, this weird episode was just sitting there. Just, you know, stuck in after a knight's tale. I could have sworn it hadn't been there before, but it looked like it could be good fun, so I did it anyway. It's Verbal Diorama episode number 45.
Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 45, Little Shop of Horrors. I hope you're all still staying safe and well and most importantly still social distancing um, despite some lockdown restriction here in the UK. Um, they're kind of doing it gradually I think um, but still um, I hope you are all well. Um, you'll be pleased to know that despite my threats last week, there will be no singing in this episode. Um, the little intro that you just heard um, is all you're going to really get from me. Um, I actually made that um, at the weekend. It was um, it was kind of a promo for this episode um, and I put out a little video on social media. I'm actually quite proud of it and I know it's rubbish. I know that it's like literally probably the most rubbish thing you've ever heard in your life, but it's not much, but I'm very proud. Um, if you're new to Verbal Diorama, welcome to this podcast. Uh, this is the 45th episode of this podcast, which is it's crazy that it's almost episode 50. Uh, it's just bizarre. Um, thank you for listening to this podcast, first and foremost. Um, and last episode was on A Knight's Tale. And I wanted to just say a quick thank you to everyone who obviously downloaded and listened to A Knight's Tale. Um, a lot of the comments that I got from people were mainly about Heath Ledger um, and, and about how much he's still just so missed. Um, and I mean, it's, it was lovely to be able to chat to some people about Heath and chat about some of his movies that he's done. And I kind of hinted that he would be back and he will be back. Um, expect more of him in the coming months. Um, and that's all I'm going to say. Um, I'm going to move on quickly. I'm going to move on to Little Shop of Horrors um, because I'm not going to beat around the bush. This is going to be quite a big episode because Little Shop of Horrors is... One of my favourite musicals. I am a big fan of musicals in general. I love classic musicals like West Side Story and um, The King and I and Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music. Um, I also love modern musicals. Um, I'm a big fan of Chicago. Um, I enjoy The Greatest Showman. I don't think it's the greatest movie ever made, but I think the music is good fun. Um, and obviously uh, animated musicals. I have been a massive fan of Disney uh, since I was a child so and obviously this movie has a link to some classic uh, Disney movies from the late 80s and early 90s so it's going to be really great to be able to chat about that um, but I just wanted to point out that this is not the first time that I've actually talked about Little Shop of Horrors um, because uh, about a month ago ish uh, just under a month I actually went on a uh, friend of the podcast, Show Me the Podcast, with Harry and Lorraine, um, and I talked about Little Shop of Horrors, um, and I also talked about Chicago as well, because it was basically an episode about movie musicals. So, obviously, if you enjoy this, you should also check out their episode on movie musicals, because we talk about all sorts of different movie musicals sort of going through the years, um, and it was a lot of fun to talk with them about it. But Little Shop of Horrors is really special to me um because it's a movie that blends my love of musicals um I am a bit of a closeted musical theatre nerd um in another life I probably would have had the confidence to actually get out and sing and dance on stage but I've never had the confidence to do it so um but it kind of blends that love of musical theatre 
my love of sci-fi and also my love of practical effects. Um, And if you listen to this uh, podcast regularly, you will know how much I love practical effects um, and also puppetry as well. Um, And these effects and the puppetry still are phenomenal. Um, This is a movie that's almost 35 years old. Um, and it still is just tremendous. Um, and for me personally, I have experience taking care of a demanding alien creature who just wants to be fed constantly. Uh, (laughs) And I'm pretty certain that she is planning on taking over the world. Um, she's been planning it for 16 years. Um, she's a little bit furrier than Audrey too, to be fair. Um, but I feel like if she's been planning it for 16 years, it's probably going to be quite big. Anyway. Here's a trailer for Little Shop of Horrors. It all began in this little shop. Ow! Damn roses! Where, strange as it seems, something extraordinary happened. I'm afraid it isn't feeling very well today. No, it's not. What kind of a riddle plant is that, Seymour? Little Shop of Horrors. A story about a boy. I've given you sunlight. I've given you rain. Looks like you're not happy. Unless I open a vein. <laughs> Where did you get such a weird plant? A girl. Get out and make a nice voice when you live on Skitty a florist. I'm telling you, Audrey, he's not a good, clean kind of boy. He's a professional. I've been saving all month for this. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. And a plant. Feed me all night long. How am I supposed to keep on feeding you? Whoa! Catch me now! I'm just a mean green brother from outer space and I'm playing. I'm just a mean green brother from outer space and it looks like you've been hanged. Yes! Rick Moranis. Man's a total disgrace to the dental profession. Ellen Green. Excuse me. Excuse me what? That's better. Vincent Gardenia, with special guest appearances by Steve Martin, John Candy, and Bill Murray. It's your professionalism that I respect. Little Shop of Horrors. Down on his luck, Seymour Krellborn, a nerdy orphan who works at the failing Mushnick's flower shop in Urban Skid Row, harbours a crush on his fellow employee Audrey, a shy girl with no self-confidence stuck in an abusive relationship. One day, under a total eclipse of the sun, Seymour comes across a strange and interesting plant that he names Audrey Two. Putting Audrey Two in the window reverses the fortunes of the florist, and customers are obsessed with the little plant. Seymour struggles to keep the plant flourishing, as plant food just doesn't seem to work, until he accidentally cuts his finger on some thorns, and the little plant suddenly becomes interested and Seymour starts to feed it blood. As Audrey too grows, so does his appetite, and he demands more and more blood in return for Seymour getting everything he desires. So the cast of Little Shop of Horrors is, I mean, it's basically a who's who of the 80s, (laughs) In, in a roundabout way. So obviously we have Rick Moranis as Seymour Krellborn, 
Um, Rick Moranis is basically a stalwart of the 80s and 90s movies that were aimed at families. Uh, like Ghostbusters and its sequel, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and its sequels, uh, The Flintstones, which I actually rewatched uh, part of the other day and I still find very funny. <laughs> and obviously Mel Brooks' Star Wars spin-off Spaceballs. Um, Ellen Green um, is a bit of a wild card in this cast. She is Audrey. Uh, Ellen Green made her name in the off-Broadway show, playing Audrey um, and when it came to casting this movie the studio wanted Cindy Lauper or Barbara Streisand but Frank Oz uh, saw Ellen Green in the off-Broadway production and he knew he had to have her he knew that she would be the perfect Audrey uh, we also have Vincent Gardenia as Mr Mushnick who claimed that he was only cast because his surname is Gardenia <laughs> uh, Steve Martin as Orin Scrivello DDS Levi Stubbs as the voice of Audrey 2, Tashina Arnold as Crystal, Michelle Weeks as Ronette, Tisha Campbell as Chiffon. They are the girls of the Greek chorus in the movie. We also have Jim Belushi as Patrick Martin in the theatrical version. Uh, Paul Dooley is Patrick Martin in the director's cut version. Um, I'm going to talk about the two versions a bit later. Uh, but essentially, Paul Dooley was unavailable for reshoots. So Jim Belushi stepped in. Uh, and that is why he is credited in the theatrical version. Interestingly, in the theatrical version, Paul Dooley is given a special thanks. In the director's cut version, Jim Belushi is given a special thanks. So everyone is very thankful for both of these Patrick Martins. John Candy as Wink Wilkinson. Christopher Guest as first customer. He's literally credited as first customer. And finally, Bill Murray as Arthur Denton. Audrey 2 was designed by Lyle Conway and performed by the following puppeteers. This is not an exclusive list of puppeteers. This is the only list of puppeteers I could find. Um, I'm going to talk about the Audrey 2 puppet in a lot of detail later. But the puppeteer names that I could find were Anthony Asbury, Brian Henson, Mac Wilson, Robert Tigner, Sue Dacre, David Barclay, Marcus Clark, Paul Springer, David Greenaway, Toby Philpott, Michael Bayliss, Michael Barclay, Don Austin, Chris Leith, William Todd Jones, Terry Lee, Ian Trigoning, John Alexander, Michael Quinn, James Barton, Ronnie LeDrew and Graham Fletcher. That is not an exhaustive list. There were a hell of a lot of puppeteers working on that puppet. The screenplay was by Howard Ashman. It was based on the off-Broadway musical Little Shop of Horrors by Howard Ashman, which in turn is based on the low-budget black comedy The Little Shop of Horrors by Roger Corman and Charles B. Griffith, which came out in 1960, which was in turn influenced by a 1932 story by John Collier called Green Thoughts, as well as Arthur C. Clarke's sci-fi short The Reluctant Orchid, which was in turn inspired by the 1905 H.G. Wells story The Flowering of the Strange Orchid. <laughs> it's uh, basically this story. It's a tale as old as time, shall we say. It was directed by Frank Oz, who previously directed The Dark Crystal with Jim Henson and The Muppets Take Manhattan. Um, this was his second solo directorial effort, and he's obviously well known as a puppeteer and a performer in his own right, from his work with The Muppets and Sesame Street and obviously Yoda in Star Wars. How this movie actually came about is quite interesting. So it started with a guy called David Geffen. 
He is a producer, studio executive and a philanthropist. He created and sold Asylum Records in the early 70s and he basically started producing hit shows. So he produced Dreamgirls and Cats and Little Shop of Horrors on Broadway. He founded Geffen Pictures in 1980, which specialised in releasing slightly more offbeat, sort of darker comedies, such as Risky Business in 1983, all the way through to Beetlejuice in 1988. David Geffen would go on to co-create DreamWorks Pictures in 1994 with Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg. David Geffen, um, he originally worked on transferring the stage musical from a small-ish theatre called the WPA Theatre to the much larger Orpheum Theatre. The musical Little Shop of Horrors um, contained the music and lyrics of Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Uh, The musical was critically acclaimed and David Geffen was now working in the movie industry and with his own production company, he was actually developing new projects for Warner Brothers And he loved the idea of making a movie adaptation of this musical that he adored. Originally, Steven Spielberg was attached to executively produce and Martin Scorsese, of all people, uh, was to direct. He wanted it to be in 3D, but that production was stalled by a lawsuit from the original writer, Charles B. Griffith. Um, Once all that was sorted out, David Geffen approached Frank Oz, uh, who was finishing his directorial debut, Muppets Take Manhattan. Uh, Frank Oz read the script um, and he actually went to the off-Broadway production and he refused the offer. Um, He basically could not see how a stage musical could translate from stage to screen. Um, A few weeks later, when he was working on another project, the idea just came to him, a bit like Audrey 2 during a total eclipse of the sun. Um, And it gave him this idea of how he could rewrite the project to make it more cinematic. He took a month and a half and he restructured the script. He didn't remove or change any dialogue at all. Um, And he basically reconstructed the show for the purposes of making it into a movie. Changes made included the expansion of the title song, the reworking of You Never Know to Some Fun Now, and the removal of four songs. So they were... Close for Renovation, Mushnick and Son, Now It's Just the Gas and Call Back in the Morning. Um, And he also added a brand new song, Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. As I mentioned, this movie is based on the musical, which is based on the Frank Corman 1960 version, The Little Shop of Horrors, um, which is probably most famous as Jack Nicholson's first screen role. The Little Shop of Horrors is black and white. It was made for $30,000 in 1959. It was filmed over two days and it utilised sets from A Bucket of Blood, which was Frank Corman's previous movie, a movie that was also written by Charles B. Griffith. Um, It is actually available on YouTube in its entirety. Uh, I watched a little of it. Uh, I admittedly didn't have time to watch it all. Um, But it is very clear that you can see the inspiration for the story I would say from what I've seen of The Little Shop of Horrors, it is a lot more um, slapstick in its comedy in a little way. Um, But I can't really pass too much judgment because I've not seen it in its entirety. Um, And obviously it was made for $30,000. So it's it's not the most elaborate production is is probably the nicest way to put it. It was obviously made on a budget. Um, But I mean... I've heard very positive things about it. So, and like I say, it is available on YouTube should you wish to watch it. Rick Moranis, kind of perfectly cast. He was cast a lot 
um, in the 80s as the the nerd, basically. Um, and he's kind of perfect as this nerdy, unconfident Seymour. Ellen Green is a delight as Audrey. And I'm so glad that they kept her in the role because she plays Audrey as very meek and quiet um, and with very little self-esteem. But she has this power in her voice, which kind of belies the power that Audrey herself actually possesses. Um, Steve Martin is suitably scary and sadistic as Orin Scrivello, DDS. So much so that you feel he genuinely does deserve to be uh, fed to a plant. Um, even though technically um, he does kill himself. Um, so really, if you look at it, Seymour kind of isn't doing that much wrong. Um, I mean, is it murder to feed a dead body to a hungry plant? I don't know. Uh, similarly, Vincent Gardini's Mr. Mushnick is mean enough to Seymour for his death, again, importantly, not at the hands of Seymour, to feel okay. Um because if either had any redeeming qualities, the film wouldn't work as well as it does. Um, and it really does, because it really does connect you to these characters of Seymour and Audrey and their hardships, I guess, um, are very relatable. Because the hardship of living on Skid Row is effectively realised. Um, it's the sort of place that you get stuck in. Uh, the constant loop of poverty and depression where an abusive relationship is even more difficult to get out of because Audrey can't afford to leave Skid Row. Um, and throughout the story, we're still rooting for Seymour and Audrey to be able to leave this life behind because we want them to be together. We want them to be happy. And Seymour does what he does because he can see the light at the end of the tunnel. He can see a way to be happy. He can see success and and being prosperous um, and being with Audrey. And he can, and at the start, he sees how Audrey too can help him achieve that. Um, and it's really important that we root for these characters. Um, but I'm going to talk a little bit later about how the audience kind of rooted for them a bit too much. Um, and that kind of put about a bit of a problem uh, for the filmmakers. But we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, Levi Stubbs, obviously the voice of Audrey 2, the iconic voice of Audrey 2. He had to get permission from the Four Tops to do a solo project. Uh, he recorded his lines uh, at Pinewood Studios while they were filming. So he was recording as they were filming. So basically his lines were hot off the press, so to speak, coming down. Uh, and he was just basically bashing these lines out. Uh, as I mentioned, it was filmed at Pinewood Studios here in the UK. Uh, they made use of every soundstage that was available at the time. Between shots, an interesting fact, the cast and crew were obsessed with playing table tennis. They were always playing it. Uh, they used to hide table tennis bats in props and in drawers. The production itself was obviously very difficult, very demanding. Um, I think I read that they filmed over the Christmas period. So I think they had one day off for Christmas and then they were back at it filming. So it was a really tough shoot. Um, and so they basically took these little joys and little victories wherever they could. And that included table tennis. Um, so everything that you see on screen is created. All of Skid Row was built uh, on a soundstage. Uh, the overhead train track was built specifically for Skid Row. Uh, everything in this movie is practical, bar one shot, which I will talk about later. Um, 
I love the little details in this movie, such as the painted sky, which is clearly not real. <laughs> it's clearly not a real sky, um, but it kind of adds to this surrealness of of this movie and of this place um, because Skid Row feels very real, but it's also sort of this weird, dark, twisted fantasy as well. Um, in fact, they chose, they specifically chose not to film on location because they wanted this movie to feel fantastical and surreal. Um, they shot on the famous 007 stage um, and that was mainly for the Suddenly Seymour number, which was obviously, it's obviously a huge set. It couldn't be heated properly. Um, so a lot of the time the actors had steam coming out of their mouths because the set was so cold. They had to put ice cubes in the actors' mouths to stop the breath. They essentially made Skid Row look like it was a place you did not want to visit, let alone live in. Um, and I think they executed that pretty perfectly. Um, I can't talk about Little Shop of Horrors without talking about the music, uh, because I mentioned there was a connection with Disney, and there is, so, you well, you would know, because I mentioned Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, so they were the team behind The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and also Aladdin. Um, if you listen, you can actually hear distinct similarities between part of your world from The Little Mermaid and Somewhere That's Green. Uh, they're both the I Want songs, which are a trademark of Ashman and Menken's work. On The Little Mermaid, they actually joked that part of your world was really titled Somewhere That's Wet. Um, because they kind of knew that there was a clear similarity. For this episode, I, I toyed a lot with including the musical numbers, and I really wanted to include them all. And then I thought, well, it's a bit impossible, really, for me to effectively include all of the musical numbers within an episode. And I kind of felt like I didn't want to leave anything out. Um, so I, I kind of decided that it would be a better idea just to top and tail the episodes with some clips of music. Um, and I felt like I couldn't really go into and use all of the music. Um, so that's kind of a decision that I thought was the best thing for this episode. Um, I mean, I would say that the Little Shop of Horror soundtrack is one of the best soundtracks um, of any musical. I think all of the songs are fantastic. They are great to sing as well. I sing them in my kitchen a lot and I, I dance along. Whenever I'm waiting for something to cook, often it will be to the Little Shop of Horrors soundtrack. Um, as much as I love the music and I would love to be able to just stop and say, and here I'm going to play a clip from Dentist. <laughs> because, you know, every single track is is worthy. Every single track has something that's brilliant. Um, but... The tracks are available online. They're available on places like Amazon Music Unlimited because that's where I listen to the soundtrack. So I know the soundtrack is out there and it's available to listen to. Um, so I would just recommend that you listen to the songs um, because they are great. So I want to talk about Audrey too because, as I said, you should know if you're a regular listener how much of a massive fan I am of both practical effects and puppets and Lyle Conway, a former colleague of Frank Oz at Jim Henson's Muppet Workshop, came on board with the movie to create the horror within the little shop. Um, having previously worked together on The Dark Crystal, Conway was a huge fan 
of the musical and he mentions in interviews what a wonderful experience it was working with Frank Oz again. Uh, he actually committed to creating multiple size plants that could move, interact and lip sync convincingly and admittedly he walked away after committing himself wondering how he was going to do it. Um, originally they filmed scenes of Audrey 2 and Rick Moranis at normal speed but something wasn't right with the way the plant puppet was lip-syncing the words. They viewed it sped up and realised the puppet looked more authentic and lifelike. And so the decision was made to film at 12 frames per second instead of 24, which meant that the actors, mainly Rick Moranis, but also a little bit of Ellen Green, would have to act and lip-sync slowly. Um, and when they did that, the film was then sped up to the regular 24 frames per second. The voice is reinserted in post-production. And, I mean, the lip-syncing is perfect. But bear in mind, when you're watching scenes of Rick Moranis and the puppet talking to each other and singing with each other, they are doing that in slow motion. And how incredible can you imagine if I had to record this podcast in slow motion and I had to keep it at a certain tempo in order for them to be able to, when it's sped up, have my lips syncing with the words that are coming out of my mouth. I just, like, how? <laughs> I don't even know how that is even possible. So, but that's what they did. That is genuinely what they did. Um, Lyle Conway, so he basically did all of the Audrey 2 puppets. He started with the little baby Audrey 2 and he wanted it. He sculpted it specifically to look precious and cute, to look like a Fabergé egg, um, to look like something that would entice someone to take it home. Um, and it is very cute. It is a very cute baby plant. So tick, that worked. Um, so Conway ended up creating a multitude of different size plants up to the full sized, we'll call the feed me plant. That is the plant that's at the end of the movie. Um, so he actually had a chance to build a complete working prototype of that full size puppet, which he then rebuilt into the final product. Uh, he was given three months to rehearse with the puppeteers, which is almost unheard of for a major Hollywood picture to give that much time for rehearsal. Uh, the key puppeteer for the Feed Me puppet was Brian Henson, son of Jim Henson, who had worked with Conway on Return to Oz. As Jack Pumpkinhead, Return to Oz still frightens me to this day. Um, that is the only time I'm probably ever going to mention Return to Oz, by the way. Um, for the finale and the Mean Green Mother song, the finished puppet was 13 foot high, one ton. It was made of foam rubber, cables. It had a Kevlar skull. 51 puppeteers worked simultaneously when everything was working. So when everything is going, the lip sync, the head movements, the vines, there were 51 people working on it. Usually it was a team of four who operated the head and you had five or six operating the vines. Uh, the vines themselves were freestanding, non-marionette puppets, which was the first time that had ever been done on film. The hardest shot for that final puppet was when Audrey 2 opens and reaches into the cash register. It took 30 takes to get right. And like most feats of skill, looks 
flawless and easy on screen, lasts less than 10 seconds, but in reality, it was an absolute nightmare for them. There were three sets of Mushnik's shop. Um, they were sized up or down, and it basically meant that different sized plants could be used in different sized sets and then scaled up to look like the largest puppet, and that was used in uh, supper time specifically. Um, it's important to note that in this movie, there are no optical illusions. Uh, there's no blue screen work uh, at all for Audrey 2, except in the theatrical version. Uh, where the plant is electrocuted. That is the only non-practical effect in the whole movie. So I've mentioned a couple of times about endings and different endings and different people starring in different endings. So I guess we'd better talk about the endings because there are two endings. There is the original ending, which is essentially now known as the director's cut ending. And there is the reshot ending which is the theatrical ending so when we're talking about the original ending the director's cut ending um right from the start Howard Ashman and Frank Oz wanted to keep the original ending because that was the ending that was in the stage musical and they wanted to keep it as faithful to that as possible um and essentially in that ending there are some character deaths uh, spoilers for Little Shop of Horrors, uh, the director's cut ending. Um, producer David Geffen wasn't enthralled with the idea, but he supported the wishes of Ashman and Oz. Uh, it was two years after that conversation when the movie was complete and they went to San Jose and they previewed it in front of a test audience. At the time, it was the most expensive film Warner Brothers had ever done and Audiences were loving it. Every musical number garnered cheers and applause. And it was clear that they had a massive hit on their hands until the deaths of Audrey and then Seymour. Essentially what happens is when Audrey 2 telephones Audrey, she goes to the shop and you reach the part where Seymour comes into the shop and sees Audrey's legs dangling outside of Audrey 2's mouth and he rescues her. Um, and this is where the movies differ. So in the director's cut ending, Audrey doesn't survive being eaten by Audrey too. Um, so even though she's saved by Seymour, Audrey ends up dying in his arms. And before she does, she expresses a wish to be fed to the plant uh, so that she can be somewhere that's green and that she can give Seymour everything that he could ever want through the plant. Um, Seymour agrees to feed Audrey to Audrey too. And after he does this, he is bereft and devastated and he climbs to the top of a nearby building to commit suicide. He's stopped by Patrick Martin, who in this is played by Paul Dooley, uh, who tells him he's taken a cutting of Audrey too and presents him with a packaged plant um, he intends to put these plants on sale across America with the hope of every household having one. Realising this was the plant's intention all along, Seymour confronts Audrey too and ends up getting eaten. Shortly after, the plants are seen rampaging through the streets. They burst through buildings and they destroy cities. Uh, this is all to a song which is called Don't Feed the Plants. Um, and then you get a final shot of one of the creatures atop the Statue of Liberty. 
Uh, and then finally, uh, a plant bursts through the screen, which is obviously intended to be a cinema screen. Um, and it's worth noting that this scene um, and the filming of it uh, was created by a guy called Richard Conway. It was all done with elaborate tabletop miniatures. It took him and his team of special effects people a year to do. And this scene alone cost $5 million just of its own. Um, and then obviously to find out that it's not going to be used. Um, yeah, pretty devastating. Um, so when the audience saw this ending, um, Frank Oz recalled that the movie theatre basically just became an icebox. So all of this cheering and whooping and clapping just stopped. Um, and at the end of the test screening, the audience were given response cards and they basically had to say what they thought of the movie. And the response card stated that they hated the deaths of Seymour and Audrey um, and it ended up getting just a 13% recommend from that audience. And in order to get a release by the studio, it needed a 55% recommendation. So they thought, well, obviously, this San Jose audience doesn't know what they're talking about. Let's take it to Los Angeles. So they took it to Los Angeles and they completely different audience and they showed the same movie with the same ending and ended up with a 16% recommend. Um, at this point, the studio was thinking, well, we need to actually change this. They actually considered recasting Levi Stubbs at this point uh, with Rodney Dangerfield, um, who was a well-known name at the time. Thankfully, they didn't do that. But what they did do was they rewrote and they reshot a new ending. And most importantly, it was a happier ending for Audrey and Seymour because this is what the test audiences wanted. So the original tape was taken out and it was cut. It was taken apart. Um, some of the scenes were actually reused for the new ending, um, but otherwise it was completely rewritten and the actors were reassembled to shoot a new ending. Um, and this is where... Paul Dooley was not available, so this is where Jim Belushi stepped in for Patrick Martin. The original ending still existed in a black and white copy of the original, um, and according to Frank Oz, it was the only thing that remained of the original ending. I was actually curious um, as to what people think uh, about the two versions, because I have my opinion on the two versions, but I thought to myself, well... I'll take it to Twitter because Twitter tends to be quite responsive when it comes to polls and things like that. So I asked on Twitter uh, which ending was preferred, whether it was the theatrical version's happy ending or the original director's cut version where the plants take over. Um, and I was quite surprised, actually, because it ended out being 55.6% preferred the theatrical happy ending. And 44.4% preferred the original plants taking over ending. And having grown up on the happy ending, which is perfectly fine and lovely, um, when I actually found out there was an alternative ending, I remember hunting it down on YouTube because I wanted to see it. And I wanted to see what this alternative ending was. And back in the day, uh, this was before the version that is now available is available. But there was a version of it on YouTube, which was black and white. And I actually became a bit enthralled with this, with this ending. And I thought it was incredible 
despite it being only black and white and clearly unfinished um i found it fascinating and since buying the blu-ray which i actually only recently bought to be fair um i now have the choice of both so you can choose to watch the original director's cut version or you can choose to watch the theatrical version and each time i've seen it on the blu-ray that i have i've chosen the director's cut version and my reasoning because i feel like i need to reason it um although seeing audrey and seymour die isn't nice um i think the original ending is just such a technical achievement that for me it kind of goes beyond the sentimentality of the happy ending aspect um i guess i kind of look at it that there always are consequences for your actions Um, and i know that sounds really bad because we're talking about characters like seymour and audrey and i don't want to make them die because of seymour's actions but um i just feel like the director's cut ending is just so exquisite in its detail i genuinely think it's a bit of a work of art and the the sentimental side of me will always kind of love the theatrical version because that was the version i grew up with but the practical effects puppet work loving side of me it's just a little bit obsessed with the ending of the director's cut um and for this episode i have to say i watched both endings i do think the theatrical ending is lovely and it's very sweet and i love the fact that they get their lovely little house um and i like the fact that it's sweet with a hint of sour when you see the little audrey too in the garden um the director's cut ending is just so bombastic um for me I'm in the 44.4%. Um, I think the director's cut ending is really special. Um, I'll actually add a link to the final track from the director's cut, uh, the track Don't Feed the Plants. Um, it's quite long, um, but it's obviously the, got the creations by Richard Conway. Um, and it's obviously been fully restored in colour um, from the original black and white copy that they had um i'll put that in the show notes if you haven't seen it please watch it because it's glorious um it doesn't add anything to the theatrical version if that's the only one that you've seen but just as an entity on its own it's just so spectacular um and it's worth five million dollars so for that i think it's worth watching um you get five million dollars worth of uh film for free on youtube so why not So one thing that I like to do each episode is I like to try and link the film that I'm talking about with Mr. Keanu Reeves. And now this is not particularly easy because Keanu Reeves, to my knowledge, hasn't been in any musicals. Um, He's not planning on being in any musicals that I'm aware of. So I can't really link him with the musical aspect. But one thing I did manage to do was uh, I noticed that Mr. Mushnick asks Audrey specifically, what kind of professional drives a motorcycle and wears a black leather jacket? And for that, I say, if he's not talking about Keanu Reeves, then I'm not sure who else he could be talking about. Um, Because we know that Keanu Reeves is a professional and he does drive a motorcycle and he does wear black leather a lot and he looks great. So... There you go. That is my obligatory Keanu reference. He's talking about Keanu Reeves. Um, (laughs) Moving on to the financials of this movie. So 
this movie cost in the region of 25 to 30 million dollars it's giving an estimated cost of 25 to 30 because originally it cost 25 million dollars that included the five million dollars for that exquisite end scene that they got rid of um and so they had to reshoot it which presumably is where the extra five million comes from um it ended up making 39 million dollars worldwide on its release in december 1986 um but it actually ended up becoming a massive hit when it hit the home market, so VHS and Betamax, um, and is now considered a cool classic. When it hit the DVD market in 1998, it actually became the first DVD to be recalled. So the 23-minute original ending was unfinished in black and white, um, so it was incomplete. And the producer and rights owner, David Geffen, demanded the DVDs be recalled without that additional incomplete material. He wanted to re-release the movie theatrically with the complete original restored in colour ending, uh, which he claimed that he had a copy of, um, which the studio did not. Um, it's all really complicated, actually, because he claimed he had a copy of it. Um, but everywhere I've read online claims that he did not have a copy of it. So <laughs> whether he not whether he did or did not have a copy of it, no one's really sure. Um, but they did have that original black and white, um, which is what they used to restore the full colour version, from what I can gather. Um, it's worth noting that if you do have a copy of that original 1998 DVD, so if you're one of the first people to get that DVD, it's quite rare. Um, and quite sought after as well. I imagine it's worth quite a lot of money um, because they recalled it quite quickly. So if you have it, maybe keep an eye on it because it's likely it might go up in value, especially if a remake happens. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. So in 2011, Frank Oz announced that a new version with the complete and fully restored original ending would be coming to DVD and Blu-ray in 2012. This version was screened at the 50th New York Film Festival to rapturous applause by the crowd. So finally, the full, complete, fully restored original director's cut ending finally got an applause, which it fully deserves, by the way. Little Shop of Horrors was nominated for several awards. It was nominated for Best Visual Effects and Best Original Song Academy Awards. So Best Original Song was for Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. That was the first song that was ever nominated for an Academy Award to contain profanity. The Best Visual Effects, the movie Lost to Aliens, um, which if it's going to lose to anything, you would want it to be Aliens. Um, and it lost Best Original Song to Take My Breath Away by Berlin from the movie Top Gun. Um, which, I mean, it's okay, but it's no Mean Green Mother from Out of Space. It was also nominated for Best Motion Picture Musical Comedy and Best Original Score Golden Globes. It lost those to Hannah and Her Sisters and The Mission by Ennio Morricone, respectively. The legacy of Little Shop of Horrors is an interesting one because, arguably, by sticking to its humble roots as a, essentially a sweet, tragic love story, and keeping the sci-fi simple by not delving too much into Audrey 2 and where he came from, this shop of horrors retains this authentic and imitation-free place in pop culture. There's nothing out there that's quite like it. And arguably, there's nothing out there that will ever be like it. 
Um, it's nerdy enough for the nerds, like me, um, and it's cool enough for the cool kids, not like me. Um, it remains grounded in real life issues such as the economy and relationship issues, but it also aims for the stars. Its musical numbers are always catchy, they're proper earworms, and great to sing along to, as I said. The premise of it is almost ridiculous, and yet it's just so stunningly realised and just so sublime in its execution. Um, and excuse the pun for execution, sorry. Um, there was a short-lived cartoon series which was simply called Little Shop, which came out in 1991, which was more based on the 1960 Roger Corman movie. It ran for one season on the Fox Kids TV network. Um, it was quite substantially different to this, but it kind of rode on its coattails a little bit. There is a remake due to be directed by Greg Berlanti with Taron Edgerton as Seymour, Scarlett Johansson as Audrey, Billy Porter as Audrey 2 and Chris Evans as Orin Scrivello, DDS. Uh, I think Billy Porter is confirmed now. Uh, Taron Edgerton, Scarlett Johansson and Chris Evans are in talks. Um, and I will put it out there and I'll say I think Chris Evans would be pretty perfect as a masochistic dentist. I will say I'm not convinced on a remake unless they make it drastically different. Um, and that's mostly because Audrey 2 will probably be CGI. And the quality of that puppet in 1986, just imagine what you could do with a physical puppet nowadays. Perhaps even a mix of puppet work and CGI would, would work. Um, I think Billy Porter is great casting. Um, and I think he could bring the charisma needed for the character of Audrey 2. Um but CGI Audrey, kind of for me, I I would really struggle with a CGI Audrey uh, because CGI kind of never does feel tangible or authentic. There's always something that kind of takes it out of the there and now. Um, and the thing is, although we're talking about a remake of Little Shop of Horrors, Little Shop of Horrors is in itself a remake uh, as an adaptation of a stage show. Uh, and a remake of the 1960 original. So you can't technically be a snob about a remake of a remake. I guess for me, I just hope that a modern remake opens up this remake to more people because it deserves it. Right, going over to social media. So another thing I like to do is I like to get opinions from friends of the podcast on social media. So the first place that I go to is Twitter. So over on Twitter, we have Dave, friend of the pod from at NFTDT. And Dave says, A musical movie right up our street. Alien plants, sociopathic dentist and fantastic songs that get stuck in your head. It's literally an episode of Not for the Dinner Table. Lol. <laughs> Joking aside, one of my favourite musicals, Moranis was perfect to Seymour and the puppetry was genius. I heart Audrey too. Me too, Dave. At Timeshifters Pod said, The musical is a huge amount of fun. If by fun you mean having the song stuck in your head for a week, and let's be honest, that is what we mean. But I strongly recommend but I strongly recommend watching the Roger Corman original. Fewer songs, but no less entertaining. And at Pulp Serial, which is Hardy L, who's one of our patrons, said, Are you going to talk about the original one as well? I did touch on the original one a little bit, but obviously as I've not seen the original, I feel like 
it would be a bit wrong of me to talk about it in great detail. Um, but hopefully the fact that I mentioned it a little bit was okay. <laughs> um, over on Instagram, at Friends and Flayers said, I love this movie. I used to watch it as a kid. Upon later viewings, I probably shouldn't have been watching it as a kid. I mean, we all watched it as a kid. It wasn't like Return to Oz, like it was seriously scary for me as a kid. But, I mean, it's fine for kids, I think. Would I let a kid watch it? Probably. Uh, uh, Somewhere That's Ellen Green said, Ellen Green made this movie. And whilst Somewhere That's Ellen Green is probably a fan account for Ellen Green, I absolutely agree with you. Ellen Green is perfect in this movie. There is no other Audrey. Scarlett Johansson, I'm sure, will be fine. But Ellen Green is chef's kiss in this movie. Steve Harvey is boss, said, This is the perfect movie. Truth. And at TFGIF podcast said, So I've never seen this. I'm not a musicals person, but I just injured my ankle. So this is going on my shortlist of bedridden entertainment. And to that I say, I hope that you have seen it and I hope you enjoy it. And I hope we can talk about it because I would love to talk about that with you. And finally, over on Facebook, we have Andy who said, Just watched this one with my daughter. Absolutely love this movie. Hard to believe this is the same songwriting duo that did Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. But not really, because if you listen to part of your world, you will definitely see, you will hear a distinct similarity between those tracks. Obviously, Little Shop of Horrors was a stage musical. Uh, I have had the privilege of seeing it live on stage. uh, And it was a... An experience which was completely fantastic. I actually went to the Belgrade Theatre in Coventry uh, a long time ago. I'm thinking eight years ago, maybe. Maybe even longer, actually. But I was so impressed um, how they put it together. The puppet work was excellent. Um, Little Shop of Horrors seems to be on stage somewhere, everywhere. Um, Because whenever I did a Google search for Little Shop of Horrors or did a YouTube search for Little Shop of Horrors. There were all these little productions that were popping up. So if there is a production of Little Shop of Horrors near you, I would highly recommend going to see it live because it will blow you away. If you think it's great in a movie, it is fantastic live on stage. Thank you for listening. Uh, As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Little Shop of Horrors. So the next episode of this podcast, um, I mentioned, obviously, Frank Oz. Um, And there is a link between Frank Oz, the director of Little Shop of Horrors, and the next movie that I'm covering. Um, Because as I mentioned, his body of work, The Muppets, Sesame Street, but probably his most famous creation is Yoda. Um, And obviously, you can't really think of Yoda without thinking of Star Wars, right? Star Wars has been uh, an entity that I've always been a bit hesitant to cover, uh, purely because I feel like the fandom can be a little bit toxic sometimes, um, especially if they don't agree with what you're saying. Um, But because I'm not really a review podcast, although I will tell you what I think, I don't do this podcast to be a critic of the movie. Um, So I feel like covering something like Star Wars um, and looking at the technical aspect of how they made a Star Wars movie... Um, it's really, really fascinating. So I wanted to try and tackle Star Wars. But then there was this, well, which trilogy? 
do you do you look at um so i decided to make it as easy as possible for myself uh, and go for a star wars movie that is self-contained enough to be discussed in one episode um but also connected enough to the original trilogy to matter in some small way as well as having interesting production story of its own so the next episode of the podcast is going to be on rogue one uh, aka Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Um, and I'm really excited to be talking about Star Wars, but I'm mega excited to be talking about Rogue One because I love Rogue One. If you like this episode, I've also done episodes on. Now, this would be the ideal moment to introduce a song, would it not? <laughs> uh, Titan AE, Captain Marvel, Dread, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Pleasantville, The Cabin in the Woods, Speed, Aladdin 1992-2019, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, X-Men Dark Phoenix, Charlie's Angels 2000, The Mummy 1999, The Matrix, John Carter, Willow, The Iron Giant, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Logan, Edge of Tomorrow, Legally Blonde, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Season 4, Episode 10, Hush, Mystery Men, Passengers, Stardust, Constantine, Arthur Christmas, Akira, Kubo and the Two Strings, The Incredibles, The Lego Movie, Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse, Howl's Moving Castle, My Neighbour Totoro, Spirited Away, Treasure Planet, Clueless, Hellboy 2004, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, Bridesmaids, Tremors, The John Wick Trilogy, A League of Their Own and A Knight's Tale. And they can all be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts from. Never gets any shorter, does it, guys? Um, (laughs) You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. You can sign up to support the show at patreon.com slash Verbal Diorama from $2 a month. You get perks such as access to the upcoming schedule. So patrons knew about Rogue One several weeks ago. Um, You can get a shout out on the next episode and on Twitter. And you also get episodes slightly early. Uh, thank you to patrons Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen. And special thank you to new patron Kat, uh, who is from friend of the podcast Shuffle the Podcast. Kat is a wonderful podcaster and a writer. Um, She is also about to launch a brand new podcast called Latinx Lens, um, which I'm really excited for. Um, Thank you so much for becoming a patron, Kat. And thank you to all the patrons for supporting this podcast. Um, I'm very grateful for your support. You can email me if you wish. Uh, You can say hi. You can say what you like about the podcast. Or you can suggest ways I can change the podcast, uh, which is just verbaldiorama at gmail.com. My website is verbaldiorama.com. If you want to support the show, um, but you can't afford to support it financially, completely understand. Uh, But what you can do to support the show is you can leave a five-star rating and review on somewhere like Apple Podcasts. Um, I would really appreciate it if you would do that because that not only tells me that you enjoy the show, it also gives me a bit of a boost because working on a solo podcast is not easy. (laughs) Um, It takes up a lot of my time. Um, I love doing it, absolutely love doing it, don't get me wrong. But sometimes having that five-star rating and review just really gives you a little bit of a boost. So if you can do anything to support the show, um, please do that. It's literally a few minutes of your time and I would so appreciate it. 
And finally, uh, Film Stories magazine has gone to print. So the June issue will be out shortly. Um, I have my little column in that. Um, obviously, I mention every episode. I would love it if you could support it. Um, you can buy one-off copies. You can subscribe. Um, and um, yeah, it's a great magazine. You should support it. I also still do little bits for Film Stories Online. Each week I recommend a great British movie podcast and I also update a little iPlayer list with some great movies. Um, iPlayer has just added a load of old 30s, 40s and 50s movies including the original King Kong and Citizen Kane. Um, there's just so many great movies. All of those movies as well are available on the service for at least a year so you've got no excuse of not seeing Citizen Kane which I've never seen by the way <laughs> or the original King Kong or there's Bringing a Baby there's all sorts of stuff on there um, but yeah they're available for a year so I would highly recommend going over to the iPlayer if you're in the UK and um, watching some of the movies that are available on there and finally they may offer you fortune and fame Love and money and instant acclaim. But whatever they offer you, don't feed the plants. Bye. Subsequent to the events you have just witnessed. Similar events in cities across America. Events which bore striking resemblance to the ones you have just seen. Talked into feeling in love.